101. It's really a series for those who are new to Valleybrook or those who are interested in membership. And uh, today, finally, we're done, okay? Um, and next week we'll get back into to studying Matthew's Gospel, which will then lead us up into Easter, which is not that far away, believe it or not. Uh, though looking at the weather, it does kind of feel Eastery, doesn't it? Um, now, one of the issues that people always want to know about when they come to a new church is, well, what do you teach about money and about giving? And um, <laughs> if you're visiting this morning, one of the, the, uh, the big reasons people don't want to go to church is they say they're always talking about money. Uh, we don't always talk about money. Um, though there is a time to talk about money. In fact, Jesus talked about money more than uh, he talked about heaven. Um, in fact, what you believe about money and how you spend your money tells you an awful lot about what you believe about God. All right? So uh, there's a place to talk about money. And uh, before you check out and go, oh, no, I don't want to listen to this, um, actually, I think your response to what the Bible has to say about money um, tells us whether you are truly a truth seeker or whether you can or can't handle the truth. Remember that Jack Nicholson movie? You can't handle the truth! Right? Remember that? Are you, are you a truth seeker or can you, can you or can't you handle the truth? A little challenge for you. Can you handle the? Are you man enough to handle a sermon on giving, or should you leave right now? How's that? Ryan, stay there, okay? <laughs> All right. Now, bigger question. Bigger question uh, before we get into uh, the issue of giving and money and so forth is this. When it comes to reading the Old Testament, let's say you're working your way through the Old Testament, um, how do you know which commandments apply to you versus those commandments that you don't need to worry about? I mean, I just, I'm just finishing up Deuteronomy, which is the last of the first five books of, of the Old Testament. It's got all those laws in there about uh, sacrificing animals on an altar, and you put the liver up there, and the fatty portions you put here. And Do I need to obey those? Do I need to go get a dog and put an altar in my backyard? Well, do, <laughs> do you have one in mind that I could use? No. <laughs> Sam? <laughs> All right, so, so I, we're pretty sure that we don't need to follow the sacrificial laws, right? And then there's all those laws about the kosher diet, which I'm pretty sure we don't need to follow those, otherwise we can't eat shrimp, lobster, or bacon. And what is life without bacon, right? So we're pretty sure we don't need to follow the, the kosher uh, laws. But then we come across, for example, the Ten Commandments. And we go, well, no, those, those it seems like we should obey those, except for that Sabbath thing, because I like NFL football. So, um, so which laws should you follow, and which laws don't you need to worry about when it comes to the Old Testament? Now, theologians have come up with a handy-dandy little... Uh, helpful way to, to figure this out. 
This is, this circle represents the old covenant. And when we talk about the old covenant, a covenant is a promise that God makes with a people. So God made a promise with Israel, with the old covenant people of Israel. And now we are in the church age where he has made a new covenant with his people, the church. Right? Now, there's a lot of laws and commandments that you'll find in both covenants. The question is, which from the old covenant are we still obliged to obey in the new covenant? How do we figure it out? Well, one thing that theologians find helpful is this. They say you can, you can pretty accurately categorize all of the laws in the Old Testament into one of three categories. The civil laws, the ceremonial laws, and the moral laws. Now, what we find out is that all the ceremonial laws, like sacrifice a goat, go to the priest, in fact, the whole priesthood, the whole, all the festivals, everything that was a ceremony in the Old Testament pointed to Christ and ultimately pointed to the cross where they were all fulfilled. In other words, you do not need to sacrifice animals because all that animal sacrifice pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus, who was sacrificed on the cross. So all the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. Right? Then there were uh, civil laws. You have to remember that Israel was not just a religious people. They were a, a, uh, a nation. They had their own laws. They had their own army. They had their own judges. So the laws that were given to Israel didn't just have moral implications, right or wrong. There were also civil penalties. For example, um, in the Old Testament, if you committed adultery, if you had sexual relations outside of marriage, homosexuality, any kind of moral violation, there was also a civil penalty. If you committed adultery in the Old Testament, what was the civil penalty? Stoning, right? Now, in the New Testament, the moral law remains, but you don't stone people, right? The, uh, the civil has been fulfilled in the sense that, that the people of God are no longer a nation with uh, with civil penalties over that nation. We are people amongst many nations. The moral law remains, but the penalty is you just go by the penalties of whatever uh, society you find yourself in. Okay? So what transfers? The moral law transfers to the new covenant. Uh, why does that transfer? Well, God can't be morally wishy-washy. If he gives a moral law at one period in time, he can't change that moral law. So the moral law transfers. Okay. Now, um, here's a question. What category do the tithing laws fit in? You know, 90% of the laws in the Old Testament, they're easy to figure out. If it involves sacrifice, it involves a, any kind of ceremony, that's a ceremonial law, don't worry about it. 
Civil penalty, don't, don't worry about it. But where do the tithing laws fit? Were those moral laws given to Israel that now transfer to the, the church? Or were those civil laws? In other words, Israel was a nation. In essence, the tithing laws uh, may have just been taxes to fund the nation. Now, why does this matter? Well, this verse needs to be categorized. Where do you put this verse? Malachi 3.8, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What's going on here? Well, uh, God gave laws to the people of Israel, uh, telling them that whatever their income was, they were to give 10% of it back to the Lord. They weren't doing that. And God says, you are robbing me. And not only are you robbing me, but you are under a curse for robbing me. Now, question. Where do you put this law? Do you put it here in the civil category, or do you put it here in the moral category? Now, theologians differ. Um, I'll introduce you to two theological terms. There's covenant theology, and then there's dispensational theology. Covenant theology finds much more continuity between the old and the new. Covenant theologians, most of them would say, it's part of the moral law. The tithing laws given to Israel are part of the moral law, and those transfer, and we are under obligation to give 10% to the Lord. Let me give you a quote from a covenant theologian um, who believes this. His name is R.C. Sproul. By the way, I, I read this once. I think half the congregation almost fainted. So put your seatbelts on. Are you ready? Okay. R.C. Sproul says this. <clears throat> Recently, I read an article that gave an astonishing statistic that I find difficult to believe is accurate. It declared that of all the people in America who identify themselves as evangelical Christians, only 4% of them return a tithe to God. If that statistic is accurate, it means that 96% of professing evangelical Christians regularly, <coughs> systematically, habitually, and impenitently uh, rob God <coughs> excuse me, of what belongs to him. It also means that 96% of us are, for this reason, exposing ourselves to a divine curse upon our lives. Thank you, dear. There she is. Give her a lovely hand. Yeah. Oh, do you want to come up and pour it down my throat every time? No. Okay. Thank you, dear. What a gracious helpmate you are. Okay. Um, so, so he says, if you're not tithing, you're under a divine curse. Whether this percentage is accurate, one thing is certain. It's clear that the overwhelming majority of professing evangelical Christians do not tithe. If we have been guilty of stealing from God in the past by withholding our tithe from him, that behavior must cease immediately and give way to a resolution to begin tithing at once, no matter what it costs. 
Okay. So now let's go back to, to our picture. Which category would you like the tithing law to be in? Would you, <laughs> would you like it to be in the moral? Or would you like it to be in the civil? Okay. Most evangelical Christians, they go, oh, man, I've studied theology for, for minutes. And I'm, I, believe, I believe that it's in the civil. That's done away with. Okay. Now, let me give you some backup. I'll give you some big-name theologians who believe it is in the civil. And uh, in the New Covenant, you are not under legal obligation to tithe. Okay. These are some big names. Uh, D.A. Carson. He says, New Testament ethics turn not so much on legal prescription as on lives joyfully submitted to God. Okay? It's not the legality of it, it's your heart. Okay? Uh, Andreas Kostenberger, the view that Christians are required to give at least 10% of their income lacks adequate support from the biblical data. Okay? And Thomas Schreiner, uh, tithing is not mandated for New Testament Christians. Okay. Now, you notice that these uh, quotes are in red. They all believe that we are not under Old Testament obligation to tithe. But let me fill in some of the missing words. So, so let, uh, I could be cruel and I could say, how many of you believe tithing is a moral obligation? And a few of you would raise your hands. And then I could say, how many of you believe that it's under, it was civil law and it's not a moral obligation anymore? And probably 90% would raise their hands. But let me read the rest of what these guys say, okay? Carson says, New Testament ethics turns not so much on legal prescription as on lives joyfully submitted to God, so why not aim for 20% in your giving, or 30 or more, depending on your circumstances? Kostenberger, the view that Christians are required to give at least 10% of their income lacks adequate support from the biblical data. Many assume that those who do not believe in the tithe need exoneration and are giving less than 10%. <clears throat> this assumption is patently false. Kaiser states that if a tenth was the minimal amount under the law, how can Christians do any less? Perhaps we should consider not how little, but how much we can give, seeing how richly blessed we are in Christ. And then Schreiner, even though tithing is not mandated, there's no call in the New Testament to hoard one's possessions or to live selfishly. For most believers in the West, that means giving more than a tithe. So, let me ask you, how many of you are now for the we're not under legal obligation to tithe? I, I, I'm a dispensationalist, and um, we're not under the obligation to tithe, so we can give 20, 30 percent. Raise your hand if you like that Those are the two positions, right? Those are the two major positions that most evangelical uh, theologians would say. Either you're still under moral obligation to give 10% or you're under a curse, <clears throat> or you're not under uh, moral obligation. That was a civil law, and God has removed the cap, and you are free to give more, and you should. Okay. All right, you're dismissed. Now, let me give you, um, let me give you my approach to how I personally live and teach. Oh, by the way, we got to read Piper. How can, how can we not read Piper? 
Uh, he says, therefore, with regard to a positive, explicit teaching on tithing, you know what? I'm losing my voice. Elizabeth, come here. <coughs> Could you read Mr. Piper for us? Yes, I can. Is it on? I don't know. Yes, okay. it is. There. Okay, listen up. Therefore, with regard to positive, explicit teaching on tithing, the New Testament is almost totally silent. I have a growing conviction why this is the case. I think God took the focus off giving a tithe in the early church because he wants his people to ask themselves a new question. The question that Jesus drives us to ask again and again is not, how much should I give, but rather, how much dare I give? One of the differences between... How much dare I keep? Keep. How much dare I Keep. keep? Go ahead. Sorry. Thank you. One of the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament is the Great Commission. The task he gave us is so immense and requires such a stupendous investment of commitment and money that the thought of settling the issue of what we give by a fixed percentage, like a tenth, is simply out of the question. My own conviction is that most middle and upper class Americans who merely tithe are robbing God. In a world where 10,000 people a day starve to death and many more than that are perishing in unbelief, the question is not, what percentage must I give, but how much dare I spend on myself? In a world of such immense need and in a country of such immense luxury and under the commission of such a powerful Lord, the issue of stewardship is not, shall I tithe, but rather, how much of God's trust fund dare I use to surround myself with comforts? There you go. I am not hearing a lot of amens, preach it, brother. But um, So, when, you, when you've got... Piper, Carson, Kostenberger, and Thomas Schreiner, all New Testament scholars, saying that Western Christians who live in the lap of luxury like us, the, the tithe has been removed, and that is so we can give more. I think we better listen up. All right? I think we better listen up. Now, here's how I approach the issue. Um, I go, what does the New Testament teach? It doesn't name a percentage, okay? But here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So here you have Paul writing the Corinthians, and he says, this is what I told the Galatians. So this is universal New Testament practice. On the first day of every week, that would be Sunday, each of you, that would be everybody, poor, rich, struggling, those who are billionaires. By the way, if you could bring a billionaire in here, this would be a nice time to do that, okay? Uh, on the first day of every week, so, so you're supposed to give regularly, weekly. Why? God provides for you weekly. Give weekly, right? Each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now, look at this. As he may prosper. That's what the ESV says. The NIV translates it this way, in keeping with his income. So, if a little comes in this week, you give proportionally. If more comes in, you give more. There is a proportion that you're to be giving. You're to give proportionally, so that there will be no collecting when I come. All right? Now, uh, the question is, what proportion do I give? Okay. Now, I think it's legitimate now to search the scriptures and say, is there any hint at what is godly proportional giving? Now, the, um, 
the debate between the Old Testament law and the New Testament law centers around this. When God gave the laws to Israel, you know, God gave Moses the laws 1500 B.C., and there were the specific tithing laws. Do those transfer to the church? And what I say is, you covenant theologians and dispensational theologians, you can bicker all you want. I'm going to skip the debate and ask the question, what did the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob, do before the law was even given? Let's not even worry about the curse in, in Malachi. Let's look at before the laws were given, what did Abraham and Jacob do? And we find out that in Genesis 14, Abraham gave Mel, uh, Melchizedek, a priest, a tenth of everything. <coughs> Abraham pre-law tithed. Jacob, in Genesis 28, 22, it says, And of all that you give me, he's talking to God, I will give a full tenth to you. So I go, <clears throat> I'm commanded in the New Testament to give every week a proportion of that which he has given to me. Where, where do I look for uh, some clues on this proportion? Not the Mosaic law, but the patriarchal examples of giving 10%. Okay? Now, um, here's, here's the question. What do evangelical Christians give? Now, a lot of people say, well, that's not fair to ask because it's a really bad economy right now. And when the economy gets better, that's when we'll give. Well, that's really not true. They've, uh, they've actually kept records on this. And um, <clears throat> Protestant giving, all the way back in 1916, before the Depression, when things were flourishing, Protestants gave 2.9%. Then the Depression hit, and do you think the giving went up or down? It actually went up. In 1933, it went up to 3.2%. Then in the 50s, when happy days were here again, do you think it went up? No. It stayed the same. And then in the year 2000, it dropped lower than it has ever been, yet Americans were 450% richer. Okay. So the idea that let's just wait for the economy to turn around before we obey God in giving. No, it, it, it's, it's, statistically it doesn't work that way. Okay? Now, the other thing is, well, I will give more when I make more. Okay, the college students rubbing their pennies together, um, they're making some money, but I'll give it when I'm making 300000 That's when I'll really give. Right? Doesn't work that way. The more money a person makes, the less likely he or she is to tithe. Um, those who make $20,000 or under, 8% of them tithe. Your income increases to $40,000, and the tithing ratio drops to only 5%. Between forty dollars and $60,000, it drops to 4%. Between sixty dollars and $75,000 to 2%, 2% of them tithe. And... 75 to 100,000, only 1% in that category actually tithe. Okay? Now, um, 
So far, <clears throat> what I have been doing is asking the question, what does the Bible say about this? And it's all law. It's, it's law. It's what you should do. <clears throat> I want to change the tone. And I want to motivate us, rather than being scolded by the law, I want us to see why tithing, why giving is such a freeing thing. Because it has to do with the character of God. Right? Um, bottom line, when you give generously and when it hurts, you know what you find time after time after time? God can be trusted because he provides again and again and again. I'm not preaching the health wealth gospel here. You know, send your $10 in to this TV evangelist and you will be driving a Cadillac tomorrow. No. What I am saying is you're, you're acknowledging that God provides everything you have anyways. Do you, do you really think you make the money you make because of your brilliance? Because you're so much smarter or more talented than somebody in Haiti? You, you really think that, that it's you? Or do you believe the truth that anything you have is because God has provided it? Well, I work hard. I do have brains. I am an entrepreneur. All that was given to you by God. Right? So, um, let me read, I'm going to read the two stories about widows. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. And I think these stories have been abused. I think they've been used to scold people into giving. And I don't think the intention was to, uh, was to scold people. I think it's to encourage people about the character of God. Let me read the one. Now, Elijah was alive during a time of not only recession, not only depression, but famine. There was famine in the land. And God told Elijah, go to Zarephath, and there's a, a widow there. She'll take care of you. So here's the story. Uh, so Elijah says, hi, I'm Elijah, the bald prophet from Israel. Um, God sent me. And uh, she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I always love this. Her, she's got her little to-do list. What am I going to do today? Uh, gather some sticks. Going to go make a fire. Make a pancake. Going to eat it and die. What are you doing today, Elijah? <laughs> I'm planning on starving to death. Okay, So Elijah says, all right, I like your plan, only I have a suggestion for you. Not a suggestion, a command. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and, or she, uh, and she and he and her household ate for many days. 
The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now, here's how I've heard this passage misused. I've heard people, pastors, say, um, the, the message is, give to God first, or, or God will curse you. The reason you're having financial problems is you're not tithing. See? You deserve what you're getting. The only problem is this passage isn't about tithing. She wasn't giving 10%. She was giving 100%. Right? What is the point of this passage? I think the point of the passage is this. God is our ultimate provider. And giving instead of keeping is a way for this widow to show that she is trusting God over her own resources. She is trusting God as her provider. And when we read it, we're to see this as an example of an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can provide for a poor widow who gives it all away, if he can provide in an extraordinary situation, won't he provide for me in my ordinary situation? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Jesus uses the same type of argument in Matthew 6. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, this is actually an argument from the lesser to the greater. If birds are taken care of by God, how much more so will he take care of you? That's an argument from the birds. He takes care of the birds. Can't you trust him to take care of you? That's an argument from the lesser to the greater. But in the first verse, he gives an argument from the greater to the lesser. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, uh, what you will put on. Is not life, that's the big thing, God gave you life, is not life more important than food? If he gave you life, won't he give you the food that you need to sustain it? And the body, he gave you a body, isn't that more important than clothing? If he gave you life in a body, is he not capable of giving you food and clothing to sustain that life in that body? That's an argument from the greater to the lesser. You want to see another argument from greater to lesser? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things we need? If he died for you, that's the greater thing, won't he provide for you? You know, here's what we forget in this whole matter of money. We think we're on our own. We think it's all up to our, uh, our job, our bank account, the economy, and our management ability to, to keep it all in line. And what we forget when we get panicked, right, when we get anxious about money, we forget that we have a Heavenly Father watching over us. Is your trust in your job, the economy, your skills, or is it ultimately in your Heavenly Father who's watching over you? And how you hold on to your money 
speaks volumes on whether your ultimate trust is in you and your money and your ability or whether your trust is in him as your provider, your heavenly father. Let me give you this illustration. Um, a few years ago, I think Caleb was like nine or ten. And um, you know how kids, they, they get something in their mind like they've got to get this new video game. Well, he needed, he had to have an iPod Touch. And he started saving birthday money and allowance. And it was going to cost $211. And finally, he had $211. And we were going to go to church and then go to Walmart and get an iPod Touch. And I noticed then when it was time for the offering that he put some money in the offering. I'm like, oh, he's not going to get the iPod now. So on the way home, I said, I noticed you gave some money. How much did you put in there? He said, $211. And I'm like, you idiot. No. I <laughs> <laughs> he gave it all away. I go, why? He said, God wanted me to. Now, do you think I, as his father, am going to see that? They go, well, too bad. Guess you won't get your iPod now. Or do you think I'm going to be moved to take care of him? Now, I actually shared that in a Bible study, and somebody else in the church said, I want to buy him that iPod. All right? But he got his iPod. But here's what I want you to see. As God watches you anxious about your money and the economy, and are we going to make it, yet you trust him in tithing. Do you think he's just going to sit up there and go, let him starve? Or do you think you can trust him? It's all about trust. See, this is where faith really hits the road. You can say, oh, I read my Bible, I believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the Trinity and this and that. And that. Do you trust him as your provider? Can you reduce your lifestyle by 10% and give it to him? Nope, can't do that. Then do you really trust him? Do you really trust him? It's like I remember talking to a guy once about Christianity and he goes, I'm really, I'm really searching. But I have a question. Do you have to give up beer? <laughs> and I, I said, well, you're not to get drunk, but no, you don't have to give up beer. He goes, well, that's good, because if you have to give up beer, I'm not interested. <laughs> oh, we're really deep here, aren't we? Okay. Now, let's talk about money. Um, do you have to tithe to be saved? No, you're not saved by tithing. You're not, uh, you don't buy your way into heaven. You're saved by faith alone. And then when you trust in Christ, you say, Christ is my Lord. What, what does he, how, do, how am I supposed to, to live and manage my life? And he says, yeah, give, a, give generously, trusting that he is the provider. And there are some people who would say, oh, well, if it involves tithing, I'm not interested. Really? You're that shallow? 
if he said, give 90%, I died for you. Why wouldn't you give 90%? Right? Now, back to the, uh, back to the widows. Interesting. We have this example of a widow who gives it all away in the Old Testament. And then Jesus gives us a similar example. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now again, are we to be guilted by this? And go, oh, I, I, you know, if, I, if I don't give it all away, I'm going to hell. No. I think this is an example of an argument from the greater to the smaller. If God can be trusted in this extreme example, can he not be trusted in our ordinary, everyday, weekly giving? Let's pray.